think my last Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Scottsdale Saturday Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 9th of September, October 2021. My name is Maria F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in mm. Ireland. Please note that our speaker today, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A sessions which follows will not be recorded. I'll be hosting today's study. Our co-hosts are Sue L and Nancy J. If you have any questions or any concerns, please contact either myself or either of the co-hosts. And you can do this by private message in the chat function. And if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during the workshop, we'd really appreciate that. In order that we can all be present with each other, we ask that you refrain from using the chat function for the duration of the workshop. And we also add additional time at the end of the workshop in order for others to exchange numbers for sponsorship, fellowship and outreach. Reach. So please do stay with us for that. So I'd like to now pass you over to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I am just as thrilled as I can be to be here. We're going to crack open the chapter of vision for you that we just got, just got started on last week. I hope that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether this is on a podcast or you're listening to us live, that it is as absolutely astonishing as it is where you are, as it is in Arizona today. It is 79. The humidity is very low. There's not a cloud in the sky and it's just breathtaking in Arizona. And as we say to each other in Arizona at this time of year, this is why we live here. This is why we live here. So it's just beautiful here, and I'm hoping that it is where you live as well. Uh, we have been talking about alcoholism and alcohol. We've been talking about compulsive overeating and compulsive eating, being a compulsive overeater or compulsive eating. And those things sound very similar, but they're worlds apart. And a compulsive overeater is someone who has an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. And compulsive eating is sometimes done by regular, normal eaters. Now, why am I talking about that? Because this chapter of Vision for You was written for, to answer a question that I had, and I bet many of you or all of you had that question too. What is my life going to look like without the food? How am I going to watch a football game? How am I going to go to a movie? How am I going to function in the world without food? Food was more than food to me. It was my lover. It was my friend. It was my companion. It was my recreation. It was everything to me. It kept me company throughout my loneliness. And I'm not going to go into the entire explanation that I went into last week. If you missed that, you can just pull the recording of last week's and it's definitely on there. But I am going to recap some of the highlights of some things as we kind of roll back into the chapter. The chapter of vision for you was written to answer the question, what will my life look like without the food? 
Because for me, as far back as I could possibly remember, food was everything to me. I was a scared child. I was an angry child. I was a jealous child. I was a child who was born into the world, not knowing how I fit in. I was a child that was born into a world that seemed like everybody knew how to live and everybody knew how to be thin and everybody knew how to adjust their lives to the tasks at hand and I did not. I didn't know how to complete tasks. I didn't know how to live in the world. But if there was one thing I knew how to do, it was eat food and the food comforted me. When people couldn't comfort me, there was food. When things didn't go my way, there was food. When I was scared, there was food. When I was angry, there was food. And the food worked like a charm to make me feel better. Now, the only problem with that is twofold. Number one, the effect of the food only lasted about nine or 10 seconds. And after about nine or 10 seconds of feeling better, I feel horrible. And the other problem with this, because I am a compulsive overeater, is I also have an allergy of the body, which makes it absolutely impossible for me to stop eating once I have started because of this allergy of the body. And that allergy puts me with, not puts me, has me in a situation where I have a craving beyond my human control. And I end up eating much, 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 much more food than I ever intended to eat. But my social life, my very life, my very existence centered around the consumption of food. Bill Wilson writes in his story, and he writes that when his friends were getting on him about all the liquor he was drinking and how much he was getting drunk, he had to make a decision and he became a lone wolf. Everything I ever wanted was to be with the boys and then later on with the girls. But everything I did was to be with the food and the food kept me company in a way where nothing else could possibly keep me company. It was masterful at being there for me. It was masterful at soothing me and masterful at settling me down. Then I came into Overeaters Anonymous, not because food was my problem, but because food was my solution to the problem. And if food was my solution to the problem, what was the problem? The problem was the buildup of everyday normal human emotions. And as, as those emotions would burst to the surface inside of me, my brain would lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that would come instantly by eating certain foods, and I would eat them for the effect, and I would succumb not only to the effect, which was great, but to the allergy, which was a lot less than great. The allergy made it so that I could not stop. 
So compulsive eating was not my problem. Being a compulsive overeater was the problem. They sound similar, but they are galaxies apart. Galaxies apart. Normal temperate eaters from time to time will eat compulsively. They'll overeat. You hear them all the time on Thanksgiving or New Year's or at a Super Bowl party or whatever. They will eat too much and they get sick and they don't like the feeling. But a compulsive overeater is totally different. Being a compulsive overeater means that unlike them, in their case, when they eat compulsively, how do they settle that down? They stop eating compulsively and they become fine. But being a compulsive overeater means I'm going to have to put the food down. I'm going to have to keep the food down in the face of temptations to pick it up. Because let's face it, withdrawal is very, very painful. When I withdraw from the food, there's a physical withdrawal and there's an emotional withdrawal that are very, very painful and very, very challenging. And most people succumb to them many times before they recover. Uh, the withdrawal is very, very painful. It's nauseating and it's emotionally and physically draining. But being a compulsive overeater means I have a problem that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. Very, very important distinction between compulsive eating and being a compulsive overeater. It's a little easier to understand with alcohol. The problem for the alcoholic is not alcohol. The problem for the alcoholic is alcoholism. Alcoholism is the problem. And alcoholism will not be settled down by a mere cessation of drinking. They have to work the steps and have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps to have any relief from their alcoholism. So alcohol, alcoholism, compulsive eating, being a compulsive overeater, they're different things. And I am a compulsive overeater. Now, why do we say that at the beginning of all of our talks? When we speak, when we share, when we ask a question, we, we say, hi, I'm Harlan G. And I'm a compulsive overeater. Do I say it so you'll remember I'm a compulsive overeater? Do I say it so you'll know I'm a compulsive overeater? No. I say it so I can hear myself say it because I need to be reminded of it on a minute-to-minute, -minute, daily, constant basis. Very, very important. Very important. Okay, we're in the chapter of Vision for You, and we're on page 151 at the bottom of the page. 151, now and then a serious drinker. And I'll give you a second to get to that page. And while you're getting to that page, I just want to throw out there to you that on the 6th of November, the 6th of November, I will not be doing this big book study. I will be in Chicago. I'm going to be attending a wedding of a dear friend's daughter. So I'm going to be in Chicago. That's going to be November 6th, but we will be meeting the next few weeks, but on November 6th, 
we're going to take a one week hiatus just to just to give you that information. Okay. I'm on page 151. Now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a Sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. Well, let me tell you something about me. Withdrawal for me was as painful as anything I have ever in my entire life experienced. The physical withdrawal had me completely nauseated for days. I had dry heaves and I had vomiting for days because of the withdrawal from the food, from the sugar, from the flour, from the carbohydrates, everything that I was giving up, I went through a physical withdrawal. I also had an emotional withdrawal because sans the food, without the food, as these fears, as these angers, as these selfishness, these jealousies, these remorseful mumblings of my brain would burst to the surface and I did not have the food to settle me down, I started feeling things much, much more acutely. When I was a little boy, people would say to me, Harlan, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Boy, they were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel fear better. I feel anger better. I feel jealousy better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel everything much, much, much better. And as those feelings become so much more acute, my brain is screaming out for Oreo cookies. My brain is screaming out for French fries. And my brain will come to me repeatedly. It won't just say, eat some French fries and then I say, no, I'm not going to eat any French fries. And that's the end of the conversation. My brain will wear me down over time and it will keep suggesting these things over and over and over again until I succumb. But this time I wasn't going to succumb because I took actions and the actions that I took were to lean into the fellowship. And how did I do that specifically? Making a lot of phone calls. Now I got abstinent in 98, 1998. We very few of us had cell phones at that time and cell phones at that time were not as sophisticated as they are today. You had to pay more money for any long distance calling. You had plans which limited you and your usage. And on Saturday, you could get unlimited long distance, but on any other day of the week, you could not. And if you made a bunch of long distance calls, it would really cost you quite a bit of money. They would whack your bill. And we didn't have Zoom and we didn't have phone meetings. And I was in Eugene, Oregon, and I had to go to AA because there is no OA there. And they knew my secret and they took me in. I will forever be grateful to the new freedom group in Eugene, Oregon. They knew my secret that I was no more alcoholic than I was a raccoon. Uh, but I, I had nowhere else to go. I had nowhere else to go. 
I had phone numbers. I did make a lot of long distance calls. It was worth the money that I spent to call back to Chicago. But the bottom line is it was very, very tough. And if the truth really be known, I was such at a desperate place to give up the food because I could no longer continue eating the way I was and live very long. And I was no longer in a situation where my daughter wasn't seeing what I was doing and she was upset about it to attend. I had to give up that food. But the bottom line is it was an emotional withdrawal. It was a physical withdrawal. And I went through hell. And anybody here that thinks that if you are a, the type of compulsive overeater that I am, that you're not going to go through hell when you give up the food, I think is crazy. But today you can lean into the fellowship a lot stronger, easier, and cheaper than you could then. And eventually the physical withdrawal and the emotional withdrawal will subside as long as you don't keep picking up the food. Once you pick up the food, you're now back to square one. Now, a lot of you don't know what a typewriter is because you're accustomed to the technology that we have at our fingertips on the computers that you're on. But when I was a kid, if you wanted to knock out a letter, you had to use a typewriter. And I'm reminded of the carriage of the typewriter. It was one of the few times that being left-handed was a big advantage for me. I'm left-handed. I throw lefty. I bat lefty. I'm a left. I write righty, but I, I do pretty much everything else left-handed. And you move that thing back to the beginning and you can start the next sentence and you keep when you pick up the food you keep moving back to the very beginning so for the love of god don't pick up the food again and think that this is somehow going to avert the pain that is inevitable in the withdrawal process. Stay the course, lean into the fellowship, get your tuchus to meetings, get your tuchus on that phone, make outreach calls. And I'm sick of hearing, I don't want to call. I don't want to bother anybody. You know how to call. You've ordered pizzas in your life. You've ordered takeout in your life. Don't tell me you don't want to make a phone call. You know exactly what to do. And you know damn well deep inside you that we need to get these phone calls more than you need to make them. I pick up that phone a hundred times a week and I say, what is this? jerk need now. And invariably at the end of the conversation, I am closer to God and further away from, from Cool Ranch Doritos. So I thank God for these calls, but you're going to have to go through these withdrawals. And we can fool ourselves, like it says here. It says he fools himself. I'm back in the text. I'm at the top of 152. Inwardly, he would give anything to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. And that was true for me, too. December 29th, 1998, I would have given anything I had to go eat, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, and about 50 or 60 packages of Chips Ahoy and about 50 packages of Oreo cookies, especially by that night. But you know what? I didn't do it. Thank God I didn't do it. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. Now, let's stop right there, 
because I want to talk about happy in their sobriety. Very, very important. And see, there's a huge galaxy of difference, difference between a dry drunk and an alcoholic. The dry, not, no, no, I said that wrong. There's a huge difference between the dry drunk and the person who's an alcoholic who's in recovery. That's what I meant to say. A dry drunk is not drinking liquor, but they're miserable about it. They're angry and they're scared and they're miserable. They're grouchy. They're like the grouch in the brainstorm. They're angry about it. And then there's the dieter and the compulsive overeater who's in recovery. We have people dieting with group support. And that's a miserable, miserable existence. Dieting with group support means I'm just not eating, but I'm not working the steps either. And so my emotional level is extremely volatile. My emotional level is extremely and acutely vulnerable to fear and anger and jealousy and regret and remorse and all these various things. So I have a condition that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. And one of the things that you will hear me say about recovery is not only do I have almost 23 years abstinence, but for 99% of that time, I have been happy in my release from the urge to eat compulsively. I'm happy about it. And one of the things I love about a vision for you, or one of the things I love about just being with people that are in recovery is they're smiling and they're laughing and they're joyous and they're free. And when you're around people that are just dieting with group support, and what is the difference between someone who's dieting with group support and someone who's in recovery? The person who's in recovery is working the steps and they're continuing to work the steps all the time. They're not stopping four times in step 10. What do they use? The word what? Continue, 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 continue. Very, very important that we continue to work these steps. So if you're not eating, but you're not happy about it, and you're miserable about the fact that you're not eating, look to see, are you working the steps? I don't know where you are in the step process, but if you're beyond step four, step five, are you doing your amends? Are you doing 10s and 11s? Are you doing what you need to do to grow in your spiritual life? For if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through self-sacrifice and constant work with others, he will surely drink again. And with us to drink is to die. So I am addressing this to the people out there who may be in a situation where they're not eating, but they're not happy about it. What can you do about it? Reshuffle the deck and look at what you're doing or look at what you're not doing and see where you can work the steps a little deeper and a little more constantly and a little more efficiently. That's the difference between someone who's happy in their release 
and someone who's miserable in their release. It boils down to working the steps. Very, very important distinction. Let's continue. I'm at the top of 152. He cannot picture life without alcohol. And for me, as I told you last week, this sentence, this is a chapter where we are going to be doing a lot of stopping because this chapter is loaded with history. This chapter is loaded with things that we need to consider. So buckle your seatbelt because we are going to be taking this chapter rather slowly. Okay. He cannot picture life without alcohol. I could not picture anything from driving a car without smoking and without, without food. I could not picture sitting in front of my television. I could not picture my life. I could not picture any activity that did not include food. It was absurd. It was absurd to me to picture watching a baseball game or driving down the street. How do you drive down the street and not eat pistachio nuts? I simply did not know. There are certain songs, when I go home to Chicago, this will hit me a lot more than it hits me in Arizona. I'm going home uh, for a wedding, as I just told you. There are certain street corners that I will go down and I'm, I'm looking for my cigarettes. Maybe not now, cause I haven't smoked, you know, in, in 40 years, but I used to light up a cigarette every time I would go to that street corner, every time I would pass that, that block or that thing, I knew that it was time to smoke a cigarette. And this was like Pavlov's dogs. This is like Pavlov's dogs. It was like, see the corner, be at the corner, smoke a cigarette, grab your food. It was just, or I'll hear a song on the radio or not so much anymore, obviously. I mean, it's been a long time, but when I go home, a lot of this stuff kind of haunts me back or hits me back. And then I stand in front of the apartment building where I was born and raised and lived for my first 28 years of life. And I thank God I thank God from the bottom of my heart that somehow God elevated me above the depths and the, the absolute seriousness of my disease so that I can stand before you today or sit before you today. I'm not standing, I'm sitting. I can sit before you today and say, yes, I am a compulsive overeater but it has been 20, almost 23 years, 22 years and change since I've eaten compulsively and I could not be happier about that fact. There isn't one part of me today that would like to go off someplace and eat this or eat that. Sometimes I'll toy with those thoughts if I smell something or sometimes I'll see a commercial or something that the thought will hit me in, in the moment, but I'm not responsible for my first thought. I'm responsible for my second thought and my first action. So keep working the steps is the best advice I ever got. And it's the only thing that ever made a difference with me was this continue, continue, continue. Or if you've heard me say this before many times, recover, recover, and recover. Someday he will be unable to imagine life 
either with alcohol or without it. And that's where I am today. I have seen Super Bowls and I have watched baseball and I've watched football and I've been with friends and I've been at conventions. And the mere thought of recreational eating does not cross my mind. And the only way that's possible is through God. I could not have brought that apart about. <clears throat> then, he will, then he will know loneliness such as few do. You see, the food kept me company for about nine seconds. But after the first nine seconds, I've never known loneliness in my life. And as I said, my food got awful salty there after a while. What would happen is I knew that my friends were out at bars dancing with girls. I knew that my friends were out on dates. I knew that my friends were out building a life. They were out doing the things that people do. And... I was home with my food and I would start crying and I would be begging myself to stop and stop and stop and stop, but I could not. And as the tears would roll into the food, it got awful salty, but I ate it anyway. It was a loneliness and an emptiness that I hope that I never feel again. And my sincere wish for anybody here is that if you're in that space, that you finally, finally will heed our words and grab one of us after this meeting and get a sponsor and start working the steps. Very, very important. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. And constant thoughts of death were my, were my all the time, I was thinking about this all the time. They were my constant companions. I did not want to live in the world. I saw no purpose to it. I saw no reason to continue living. Now I'm very glad to be alive. Uh, there are things about my life that I wish were different. And I know that every one of you, there's 104 of us, every one of you feel the same. There are things about your life that you wish were different too. But the great thing about my life, the greatest thing about my life is that for today, I have the knowledge that I'm doing the best I can to be of maximum service to God and the people about us and that I'm not a slave to the food, and that I'm going to go nowhere, do nothing. I'm not going to eat anything that I would be ashamed of if you found out about it. A very, very uh, wise man said to me on a blustery, cold Chicago day, it was just miserable outside. One of those icy, snowy, lousy winter days in Chicago. And he <laughs> said to me, he said, if you want to know if you're in recovery, this is how I tell. If everything you did today, every, everywhere you went, everything you said, everything that came in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because if you're not okay with that, chances are excellent that you are engaging in behaviors that you want kept secret unto you. And he told me that as long as you engage in behaviors that are behaviors you want kept secret unto you, you, you better look at that because that's not recovery. I'm not talking about the bathroom. I'm not talking about, you know, adult swim up in your room or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where did you go? 
What did you say? What did you eat? What did you do? If you're okay with that being on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, chances are excellent you've had an abstinent day. Very, very important. We're on page 152. We have shown how we got out from under. We have shown how we got out from under. And what did they show you? How to work the steps. You're, you say, yes, I'm willing, but am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people that I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I have you a sufficient substitute? And this is the reason that the chapter of vision for you was written. The chapter of vision for you was written to answer the question that was just posed. How do I get out of this morass? And what will my life look like now that I'm not gonna compulsively overeat any longer? What will my life look like when I'm in recovery? Let's continue with the chapter and let's answer that question to the best of our ability because the chapter answers the question much more eloquently and completely than I. Let's continue. Yes, there is a substitute and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship and so will you. Now, can I get recovered on fellowship alone? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what can I find in the fellowship that I can't find anywhere else? Well, the first thing I can find is a camaraderie. I'm going home in November and I'm going to see people I haven't seen for a long time. And I'm going to see people I haven't seen for three, four years. And because of the pandemic, I'm going to see people that I haven't seen for about two years. And it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful gathering of friends and people who I love that love me. But I'm going to let you in on a secret don't tell anyone in Chicago, because if you tell, I'm going to be in trouble. So maybe this is something I don't want on the front page of the Tribune. They are wonderful people, and I know everything about them. They know everything about me. In many cases, they knew my mom. They knew my dad. My mom and dad have been gone since the 70s. And they knew my parents. And my parents loved watching them grow up. And we went to grammar school together. We went to high school together. In a few cases, we went to college together. We worked the same jobs. We had crushes on the same girls. They got to Go, go with them. And I didn't. That's for another time. But the bottom line is, is that we've had lives that were very interwoven for as far back as we can remember. Mather High School, class of 1972. And then we have friends that graduated a little before us, or we had friends that graduated a little after us. So we run the gambit. Now, here's what I don't want to get back to Chicago. So keep this part under your hat. You, who I may never meet, 
know more about me, know more about what makes me tick, and I know more about you than they will ever know about me in a million years. And if I told them that I was here this morning doing this, they would scratch their head and say, why? You're not that fat anymore. You've lost an incredible amount of weight. You don't have to do that anymore. That's ridiculous. Why don't we go out someplace and have some fun? What they don't understand is what it's like to be a compulsive overeater or an alcoholic or a gambling addict, or a drug addict. They just don't get it. To them, the way that you would attack this disease is to tell you not to eat so much, have you go to the doctor, get a diet from the doctor, and just follow the diet like they do. And when they got to be 40 and 50 and 60, they started, and these were kids that were stick thin from the time they were five they all of a sudden started gaining some weight. Some of them started really putting on the weight. They started really, you know, that belly started getting ba-boom. And they went to the doctor. And on the way home from the doctor, they joined the gym or they decided to visit the gym that they had been paying dues to for years. And they decided to actually do something at the gym. And after a while, they lost their weight. And once in a while, maybe when they're here in Arizona, because many of them visit because the Cubs train here, there's a big spring training for baseball here. And there's a lot to do in Arizona. If you've never been to Arizona, I'm not on the Chamber of Commerce, but there's a lot of things to do here. They love golfing and they love the baseball and they love, you know, being getting out of the cold weather for a while. They don't come here in the summer. They're not crazy, but they come here in the winter. And it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun. They don't know me anywhere close to how you know me. And I can have fun with them, but I can relate to you in a way I will never be able to relate to them. They can relate to me in a way that you can relate to me. You can, but they can't. Because we speak and understand something that they don't understand. What do, they, what do we speak that they don't speak? It's the language of the heart. I'm going to be sitting at a table for dinner or I'm going to be sitting around at the rehearsal dinner with them. And I'm going to be at these various places that we're all going to go to together. We're going to go see this one and we're going to go see that one. And this one's in the hospital and this one, this. We're going to do some things together like as an entourage. But if I started telling them or speaking to them about fear and anger and selfishness, and then I need to make an outreach call, they would look at me as if the next trip they needed to make was to the insane asylum to drop me off. Because they don't get any of that. They don't have feelings. They don't have doubt. They don't have these various emotions, or so they say. Their wives don't seem to have them either. Their wives don't get it either. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, at the rehearsal dinner, not, well, the rehearsal dinner and the wedding, 
I'm not going to have a place of, with food. You know why? They're going to eat dinner nine, 10 o'clock at night, which for them is very, very normal. Eating dinner at nine, 10 o'clock at night for them is nothing. And if they get hungry, they'll, en they'll engage in egg rolls or appetizers or because there's going to be an appetizer thing and there's going to be drinking. I don't do any of that. I don't eat that stuff, that fried crap. I don't put that in my mouth. So I'm going to eat dinner before I even go to these things. And they understand that. They don't understand why, but they understand that this is how I'm going to do it. They just don't get it. And they won't say anything because it's been too long. But when we were first starting out, they would say, well, why can't you just have this? Or why can't you just have that? I don't understand why you can't just do this. And you know what I found to be almost funny? Some of the ones that were pushing food on me were the exact same ones that used to get on me about being fat. So I couldn't win for losing. If I'm not eating, they don't like it. And if I am eating, they don't like it. So you know what I decided to do? Just ignore it. Just ignore it. I don't have to play it, play that game. They love me. I love them. I, it's just nattering. It's just mindless nattering. So I look them in the face and I ask them how their kids are. I look them in the face and I say, did so-and-so get into that master's program? Did so-and-so get the job promotion? They'd much rather talk about themselves than about me and my food anyway. And it immediately and effectively changes the subject. I prey on the fact that the favorite subject that they have is them. And I asked them about their kids, or I asked them about their new Mercedes, or I asked them about their new whatever, or I asked them, hey, how's the golf game going, or whatever it is that is of interest to them. The subject is effectively changed, but I'm not going to eat two dinners, and I can't eat dinner at 9, 10 o'clock at night. That just does not work for me. Doesn't work. So... How is this to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? Here they are. You know, I've been very, very lucky. I have done big book studies. I've done retreats. For a Jewish boy, I have slept in more Methodist, more Lutheran, more Roman Catholic retreat centers, convents, seminaries than any Jewish boy on the face of the earth. I have slept in, the, in these places for years. And normally when I go to these places, I don't know any of the people there. Normally, sometimes I do, but that's very, very rare that I would know them. Now I've had phone conversations and email exchanges with one or two of them. And I certainly got a chance to get to know the person who was assigned to pick me up from the airport. But other than that, I don't know one of them. And every once in a while, it'll hit me. I'll be walking into the cafeteria area, the mess area where you eat, and I'll hear the laughing. And I'll hear the joking and the camaraderie. And when everything is said and done, that's Overeaters Anonymous. 
It's not just about the steps, although that's key. It's not just about going home and not eating. It's not about going home and remaining stark, raving abstinent. But the promise of the program isn't just that you go home and not eat. The promise of the program is that you get to love and be loved and participate in life. We do not live to recover. We recover to live. We do not live to recover. We recover to live. Live your life. Live your life. Go and live. Many of you have heard me say this many, many times. I'm going to say it again. Most of, not all, but most of the people that my dad was friendly with were people who came out of the concentration camps. Most of them. And when I was a little boy, I would go with him to visit these people. They spoke in a language I really didn't understand. They were going too fast for me. And they would just jabber on and on in Polish or Yiddish or what have you. And they would grab my face like this. And they would say, live until you die. Live until you die. And when I was first hearing that as a young child, I believed that live until you die meant that you get all the chips ahoy that you want and eat them because to me that was living. And when I was a little older, I thought that that meant being thin and getting girls. And that's a, maybe a part of it. One rather than, you know, multitudes maybe. But the bottom line is, is that what that means, live until you die, is you live your life to the fullest, as it says on page 77 of the big book of AA, where it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And when you do that, you get a feeling inside your soul, a feeling inside your heart that is unlike any feeling that anything else can produce. I've watched my daughter get born. I've had good days. I've had some good times. Nothing feels as wonderful. Nothing feels as fulfilling as doing an honest day's work for the program God, because this is why I was born. It's a lot to know why you're born, and it's a lot to know what you're supposed to do now that you were born. And I get those instructions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never got them anywhere else. My job is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. That there's almost nothing that feels as good as someone that I have worked with is now spreading the recovery 
to someone who's sick and suffering. Maybe I've touched somebody's life for the good. Maybe I've touched somebody's life in some way where they will recover for another day. That's a feeling I don't want anybody to miss. That's a feeling I don't want anybody to miss. It's one of the most wonderful things about this program is the fellowship, the God squad, the real love that we have for one another. You cannot duplicate this anywhere else because the people here speak and understand the language of the heart, the language of the soul, that we know where you live and you know where I live. And though my friends are beautiful and they're well-intentioned and they're fabulous, they will never get it. And I'm never, ever going to get them to understand what it's like any more than someone could make me understand what it's like to be a house cat or a possum or a camel or a star or the moon. You either get it or you don't. Bill Wilson said at the end of his life, to those who understand, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not, none is plausible. You either understand alcoholism, you either understand compulsive overeating, gambling, drug addiction, sex addiction, love addiction, or you don't. There's no way to make, I get this call all the time. How am I going to make so-and-so understand? And my answer is not one that they like. My answer is you're not going to. You're not going to. Let's continue on with the chapter. We don't have that much more time. How is that to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? Here they are. You are going to meet these new friends in your own community. Well, we were just having a conversation before this Zoom started. What God did was he took the world. He took earth and he made it a community. On March the 12th of last year, I attended a meeting on Thursday night at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. It was the last face-to-face -face meeting that I would attend for a long time. I had a friend come in from Illinois, from Chicago, and we went to one Friday night from, for a morning meeting. Other than that one meeting, I have not been anywhere near those meetings since March the 12th, 2020. And yet I have a friend in Dublin, Ireland that I see all the time. I have a friend in Geneva, Illinois, and DeKalb, Illinois, and Texas, and, and Georgia, and, and Washington State, and California, and Sweden, and God knows where, all over this world. God took the technology of Zoom and he took that technology and he made the timing perfect as only God can. 
And instead of us being in fragmented meetings of six or seven or eight or nine of us, now on our Scottsdale meetings, Sunday through Thursday, we are frequently 70 and 80 people a night. And we get sharing from Texas and we get sharing from Illinois, and we get sharing from God, California, and Washington State, and, and, and you name it, and we have people that come to these meetings from all these various places, and I look forward all day long to seeing them, and hearing them, and finding out what's going on in their life. And so because of the technology, we are one planet. We are one group. Now, we happen to call ourselves a meeting that emanates in Scottsdale, Arizona. But nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, there are some Arizona people on the meeting. But the, there's a much far greater number of people that are not from Arizona. So you will find these people when you look for them and they are as close as your computer. They are as close as your phone every day on a vision for you, Monday through, for, through uh, Friday. There are people who share regularly from England and from Israel and from you name it and Sweden and Denmark and, and, you, and Ireland and Northern Ireland. And we have people from all over the world. What a lucky, lucky person I am. I wouldn't want to resurface the suffering. I wouldn't want to retrace my steps without, without you know, some form of anesthetic. But now that I have been through the fire and, I'm, and metal sharpens metal, and I'm now a part of this group. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I look forward with great zeal to my meetings Sunday through Thursday. And I look forward to this on Saturday, on Saturday. So we have it easier than ever with, with cell phones. I don't know about your cell phone plan, but I make a long distance phone call without even thinking about it. When I was a little boy, a little kid, I don't know how many of you can remember this and I shouldn't waste time with it, but I just feel compelled to. When you had to make a long distance phone call, you couldn't just go to the phone and make it yourself. You had to have the long distance operator and you had a call instead of 411, which was information, you had a call, I believe it was 311 or 211. And the 211 put you in touch with the long distance operator. And you'd say, okay, I want to make a person to person call, or I want to make a point to point call or something to Angela down in Waco, Texas. And I would, they'd say, okay, what's the phone number? And I'd say, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, we're going to call Angela. And then Angela would pick up the phone if she was home. And she would not hear my voice. She would hear, hi, this is the long distance operator with Illinois Bell Telephone. I have a long distance phone call for Angela R. in Waco, Texas. Is this you? And then she would say yes or no or whatever she would say. And then then they would put you through. 
then they would put you through. So making a long distance phone call today is nothing. I don't know why I got sidetracked, but I just felt compelled to, to remember uh, making a long distance call was a huge deal, huge deal. And now we make them, we don't even think about them. I, it's nothing. And if you've had the, the WhatsApp, you can make them to any country you want. It's free. I mean, what, what does God have to do? Hit me in the head? What does God have to do? Hit me in the flipping head to say, Harlan, there's recovery out there. Just go do it. It's easier today. Let's continue. I don't know how far we're going to. Oh, is going. Okay. You are going to meet these new friends in your own community. Your own community is now planet Earth. Let's face it. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds. If you live in any type of place, there are zillions of them. Obesity today is the number one health challenge that we face. In the 1930s, the 1930s, early 1940s, it was starvation, polio, things like that. Today, a huge number of Americans are massively overweight. In 1995, 1995, just a mere 26 years ago, something happened in America, not in the United States of Uganda, not in the United States of Mongolia, in the United States of America. With all we know, what happened in the United States? A generation of Americans was born with a shorter life expectancy than their parents. Why? What's the number one assignable cause? The early onset of childhood obesity and type two diabetes. With everything that we know, this is a tough addiction. Nobody's discounting that. The accountability in OA is second to none. And yet we struggle compared to AA. Now they have some advantages on us. They have court mandates. They have people that are, they call it nudged by the judge. They have people that are in those rooms that don't even want to be there. I went to AA for nine years. I can tell you from my own experience, there are a certain pocket of people in there that do not want to be there. They're not paying attention. They're drinking before the meeting. They may be drinking after the meeting, but the judge has them with the cards and they have to get them signed, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes in court custody cases for children, they have to attend a certain number of meetings, whatever that may be. We don't have that. We don't have that. But we'll, and we also have a lot of competition. We have the pay in ways and we have 19, uh, 19 12 step programs that deal with food. They only have the one AA, that's it. There is a couple of offshoots to AA, that's not true. There are a couple of offshoots to AA, but they're very small and they're not well known. They're just not well known, but that, that's, we should be the biggest. So if it's going to be, it starts with me. I'm going to keep attending meetings and we'll see where the chips fall. Rich and poor, 
If you have, if you live in a large place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. I hope to God, if there's a prayer I could send up right now, let me not know a day where I don't know some of the beautiful, wonderful people that I've met in these rooms and on Zoom. My prayer is, is when this God darned, whatever this is, pandemic is over, that we will be crying in the lobby of the Los Angeles Hilton as we attend the birthday or in the Radisson in Newark, when we attend the Vision for You convention or at a convention in Ireland or in in God knows where, whatever that is, Georgia. You know, we I say we have Dublin, Georgia. We have Dublin, Ireland here today. But the I don't know if Kathy's here. But the bottom line is, is that or in Sweden or whatever it is, may God cross our paths soon, and may we be able to appreciate each other and the precious gifts that each and every one of us today are to those around us. Each one of you who's in recovery or not, doesn't matter where you are, you are a gift. You are a gift to the fellowship. You are a gift to every one of us that are here. I don't care where you are on the spectrum. I don't care where you are, whether you are eating as you're listening to me, you are a gift. We need you and we want you. We just love you. Just let us love you until you can love yourself. Let's finish this paragraph. And I notice that it's among them, you will make lifelong friends. Oh, I hope so. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties for you will escape disaster together and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself. And when he says, give of yourself, I mean, with no expectation of a return that others may survive and rediscover life, you may learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. Very, very important. Before I turn this back over, I just want to make a few points, a couple of things that I want you to remember, please. Number one, on the 6th of November, I will not be here. So there will be no big book study on November 6th. Um, Now, there's a couple of other things I want you also to remember. On that 7th of November, which is that Saturday night into Sunday, all of you in America will be changing your clocks. And that means that Arizona does not change, but that means I will now be on mountain time instead of uh, Pacific time. Mm -hmm. I will be on mountain time. And what I've agreed to do, because this is something that some of you who struggle with this time thing, see, to me, it's very second nature because I sell on the phone all the time. Mm -hmm. But They've asked me to start this an hour earlier. I'll do that. But that doesn't take this away. That does not take anything away. No matter where you are, unless you are in Arizona, 
And I start this at 9 a.m. rather than 10 a.m. So I guess it'll affect everyone. This is going to start an hour earlier or two hours, whatever it is. You'll have to figure it out. I will start this at 9 a.m. Mountain Time after the 7th of November. I'm going to go over this every week because I know to some of us, time things are very second nature. It's very, very simple to figure out. It's no big deal. And to some of us, because you don't deal with it ever, it can be very confusing. Don't overthink it. 9 a.m. Mountain Time is 10 a.m. Central Time. It's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It's 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The sun rises in the east, sets in the west. So it's just boom, 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 boom. Very, very simple. So the time change is going to take effect the night of the 6th into the 7th when the rest of you change your clocks. Okay. Now, before I turn it over, I've got two other things I want to tell you. Numeral uno. No food questions, please. And please, no math. No math. No math and no food. No math. Okay. With that in mind, and I don't know who's on here or who's not on Arlen, here, I, all the way back to the beginning, mm -hmm. I'm going to turn it back 